This sermon uh, comes with instructions. Uh, I have four before we really start getting into our text. First, expect lots and lots and lots of narrative this morning. Our text this morning has probably more story per square inch, probably more narrative per square inch than any other text that we've covered on a single Sunday together as a church. So since it's told in narrative, you guys, there's not going to be a ton of straightforward exhortation and straightforward instruction because that's not what's in the text. And so the the key to not wasting narrative preaching is to, listen now, is to engage the preaching, to meet the preaching with highly creative listening. It's a, it's a type of listening that is prayerful and says, well, okay, who, who, who am I in this story? How do I fit into this story? How, how would I respond in these circumstances? Would I respond differently? Where's God in this story? Where's Christ in this story? Cole, that's not a very helpful analogy, but that's okay. Give me, yeah, that's a helpful one. Okay, where's the good news, Cole? I need some good news. Engage it with highly creative listening like that. Basically, what I'm saying is don't, don't listen to the sermon like you ain't got the Holy Spirit because you do if you're in Christ. Um, second, this text is going to feature some strong biblical heroes, and in Exodus 1 and 2, those heroes are, are women. And so there's going to be a strong theme that you feel come out of the text, and we're going to complete that theme tonight as a church. So if you have time, 5.30 tonight at Freedom Blend Coffee, Andrew will have more details. We're going to have a frontier rally where we rally around a couple of leaders, and uh, Tracy Self is going to share on what it looks like to follow Jesus in the midst of suffering, and Luke Snowden is going to give us kind of a biographical sketch of a, a missionary who she apparently was just a beast of a missionary, so make time for that because I think it'll be worth your time together. Third, expect lots of discomfort today. (laughs) Lots of discomfort. Our text this morning is going to speak powerfully, surprisingly powerfully, into more than a handful of key cultural contemporary issues, and it's going to speak into those issues in a way that will probably make you feel uncomfortable and that's okay because there are things that happen in the world that should make you feel uncomfortable and there are things in the word of God that will make you feel uncomfortable and that's okay. Fourth and finally, uh, a quick story about my son, Russell. Russell's about a year and a half old right now and he's, he's in this phase right now where he's, just, he's obsessed with anything that has wheels on it. Anything that has wheels on it. He'll, he'll stand sometimes at the, at the window of our house and he'll point as the, as the cars go by and he calls them buses. Anything, anything that has wheels, it doesn't matter if it's a truck or like a dump truck or a car or an actual bus. His word for anything with wheels is buses. So he'll kind of stand at the window sometimes and he goes, bus, 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 bus. And so obviously me being from a, a uh, an English teaching background, I was like, okay, we got to correct this. And so I grabbed one of his toy cars, and I was like, okay, Russell, check this out. And I held it up, and I pointed at the two wheels in the, in the car's body, and I said, wheel, wheel, car. And he looked up at me like I was the fool <laughs> and corrected me. He like lowbrowed me with concern in his face and corrected me by saying, bus, bus, Bus. Like, I don't have the English teaching degree in the family. Um, but he, he, he even spots uh, 
buses in circumstances and in context where Chloe and I don't even notice them. We were reading a book to them um, that had nothing to do with cars or automobiles, and we turned the page, and on the next page, Russell got excited and went, bus, 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 but there wasn't a car anywhere in the picture on that page. Or at least there didn't appear to be for Chloe and I at first. Like, where's, where's the car? Where's the bus? And we looked a little bit harder, and in the background of the main scene, hanging up on a wall, was a painting in a picture that had a car on it. It's not that Russell is smarter than Chloe and I, or more perceptive than Chloe and I, but he spotted that way before we did. And the reason is actually pretty simple, because Russell loves buses. He sees buses everywhere. And the eye has a really funny way of seeing what the heart loves. That's going to be our approach to the book of Exodus. As we work our way through the book of Exodus, we will labor really, really hard to to understand the immediate literary context of it and also we'll frame it within the historical context of the book of Exodus. And on top of that, because we love Jesus Christ so much, we are going to try to find him and look for him everywhere in the text, whether he's front row center in the text or just appears to be in a small painting that's hanging up on a wall in the background. Because we love Jesus, we will see Jesus every way throughout the Exodus story. There's actually more gospel per square inch in this text that we're going to read this morning than 45 minutes has time for. I'm going to bring out some of it, and I'm going to preach some of it, but my challenge to you this morning is to find some parallels to Jesus in the story that I don't, because there will be some. Now, If you missed last week's sermon, the main point was really simple. God's people were sovereignly led by God into Egypt. And Egypt was a rival nation that worshipped a rival enemy God and was given away by God at the Tower of Babel. And once they were in Egypt, Jacob died, Joseph died, but God's people began to multiply and fill Egypt. And we notice this, this little narrative detail. That's all throughout the scriptures play out. The little narrative detail is this. Wherever God's people throughout the Bible grow, a serpent appears and shows up. We noticed that in Genesis last week. In Genesis, almost immediately after God creates Adam and Eve, there's a serpent that shows up to pick a fight with Eve, the woman. And in their first encounter with one another, the serpent deceives the woman with an apple. Scoreboard, serpent one, women zero. And don't call it a comeback, but this text this morning is awesome because the women are going to strike back. The women are going to strike back against the serpent. Here we are in Exodus. God's people are growing in Egypt, multiplying in Egypt, and almost immediately like Genesis, there's a snake in the garden. There's a snake in the desert. And so our text this morning begins with really, really dark, really, really ominous language. And then arose a new king over Egypt. And what happens next is horrifying. 
Liz Todd is going to lead us through the story in the scriptures. As she comes to the front, would you stand for the reading of the word of God? As we read this word, um, I invite you, like Cole said, to look for Jesus in the story, to ask questions, um, and to really engage as we listen. Now, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let's deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. So therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pinnam and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was Shiprah and other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew woman and see them on the birthstool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God. They did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, um, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born of the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile. You shall let every daughter live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and dubbed it bitten and put pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done with him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young women walked beside the river. She saw that basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then the sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I call you a nurse from the Hebrew woman to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child 
sinners. Church, this is your exodus. Thanks be to God. Hey, thanks, Liz. A couple key characters you're seeing in our story this morning. First, there's an ethnic minority in a foreign land, God's people. Secondly, there's an insecure, delusional, power-hungry leader of a nation who feels threatened, Pharaoh. Now, a few things about Pharaoh. Um, Pharaoh, first, he is insecure, which, which means that because of his insecurity, he clearly has an ethnic problem on his hands because in his imagination, if the Israelites continue to grow, they might be a, they might be a threat to his dynasty and they might be a threat to his, his legacy and they might be a threat to him being deified as an Egyptian god in the future. But Pharaoh's not, he's not just insecure. Secondly, he's also self-obsessed and that means that his nation has a labor problem and an industry problem. He wants more statues of himself built because he's self-obsessed. He wants more cities that he wants more cities built in his name. He wants more pyramids built in his name historically, or you even know this experientially. Wherever there's a self-obsessed leader, they always create labor problems and industry problems around themselves. And so these two problems are probably emerging in Pharaoh's head. And what makes this text so disturbing and haunting is I think how just how real these characters feel just how real this plot plays itself out it all feels so familiar fear that turns into control control that turns into murder perhaps you've noticed that pattern in America's own dark history of slavery. Perhaps you've noticed that pattern in historically what happened at Nazi Germany. Fear, control, and murder. And so with, with Pharaoh, it begins with Pharaoh fearing the Israelites. We'll have this on the screen for you. Here's verses 9 through 11. When God's people are growing, the serpent Pharaoh says, the people of Israel are too many. And they're too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them. Because if war breaks out, they're going to join our enemies. And they're going to escape the land. And we don't want them to go. Now that fear that Pharaoh initially begins with, that evolves and that grows into control at verse 11. So they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. And they built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. And so with these twin problems of industry and also fearing maybe a military uprise within the Israelites, Pharaoh actually, he turns out to be um, disgustingly creative with his problem solving. He hits two birds with one stone. He solves both problems with one decision, slavery. Now, obviously, slavery solves the labor problem because, you know, free, free labor. But on top of that, that also, that also solves the military uprising problem because it breaks the bodies, it crookens the backs of those who he fears will uprise against them. And if you have half a heart, it doesn't take much of a heart this morning, but if you have half of a heart, when you read through the story, you just think, who does this guy think he is, man? Who, who does this... Who does Pharaoh think that he is treating people like this? And there's actually a historical answer to that question. 
Pharaoh claimed to be the incarnate son of the sun god. And the sun god was the primary deity or the primary god within the smorgasbord of Egyptian gods in ancient times. So in ancient world, Pharaoh was not just a, he wasn't just the most powerful leader in the ancient world. He was God. He wanted to be God. He wanted to be served as God. I can't stress this point enough. This is not just a mean king who's bullying around a smaller nation within a nation. This is God versus the devil. This is Christ versus sin. This is God's people versus the serpent. Pharaoh, he's, by enslaving God's people, Pharaoh doesn't want to just send a political message. He wants to send a religious message. He's saying to the ancient world, you will not worship the God of Abraham. You will not worship Yahweh. You will worship Pharaoh. You will not serve Yahweh. You will serve Pharaoh. You will not work for Yahweh. You will work for Pharaoh. Pharaoh is now your God. He's trying to say that loud and clear to the Israelites and to all of the ancient world. And verses 13 through 14 in our text this morning, we're going to look at them up on the screen. They actually feature a brilliant little literary device all throughout the book of Exodus. But there's this little literary device in the book of Exodus where Moses, the author, clusters together seven emphasized words that are made up of the same word group in order to make a point. That may go over your head, but as we read through verses 13 and 14, I'll emphasize it. I think you'll catch it. Verse 13 goes on to say, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Seven emphasized words all from the same word group. One scholar actually suggests that each of these seven words is supposed to have the effect and the rhythm of being whipped by a slave master. Work, bitter, service, work, work, ruthless, work. It's supposed to drone on. It's supposed to drone on. Work, 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 work. And if you know your scriptures, this is not God's ways. This is not what God is like. God is work, 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 rest. So Pharaoh is setting himself up, not just as an enemy of God's people, but even as an enemy of God's ways. And when you see him working these people to death, you just get the sense, man, you just get the sense that whenever we work or worship foreign gods, man, whenever we worship anything or anybody who is not God, life just becomes slavery, doesn't it? Anytime we don't worship Yahweh, Whatever it is we worship, life just becomes slavery for us. There's, the, there's, a, there's a, a non-Christian who one time famously said, his name is David Foster Wallace, not even a Christian, and one time he famously said, one of the benefits that do come along with worshiping Jesus Christ is that anything else you worship will eventually eat you alive. 
And so it's actually no surprise, no wonder that the New Testament writers actually use this story as a framework or a blueprint for understanding the way that sin works in our life and the type of power that sin has over us in our lives. Here's an Exodus echo for you in the New Testament. Whoever practices sin is a slave to sin, says Paul. If you don't live for Jesus Christ, you will work for Pharaoh. If you don't live for Jesus Christ, you will work for Pharaoh. You will break your back building whatever pyramid it is, whatever little pyramid that you want for your life. I don't know what your little pyramid is in your life, but maybe for you, it's your career. And if it's your career, you will work Work, 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 work to build your little pyramid and the serpent will just eat your, he'll, he'll, he'll eat your family life alive. He'll eat your marriage alive. Or maybe for you it's self-image that you worship. If it's self-image that you worship rather than God, you will post, 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 post on social media until all of your close friendships and relationships just collapse around yourselves just to build that little pyramid. Or maybe for you it's success and achievement. And if that's you, if, if you worship success and achievement more than Jesus Christ, then you will twist, 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 twist people's opinions and the way that they view you. So you'll twist the story of your life so that everybody has to view you as a winner and as an achiever to the point where you don't even know what's true about yourself just to build all these little pyramids and this is just not guys it's just not God's ways God's ways are work 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 rest for God and guys this is this is part of the beautiful glorious reason why when people come to Jesus Christ through faith and through grace they they, they often describe the experience as feeling lighter People meet Jesus, they're just like, man, I, just, I feel lighter. I feel, I feel free like the chains are gone. And it's no wonder because Jesus Christ says, my burden, my yoke is light. Jesus says, it is finished. Jesus says, you don't have to build your pyramids anymore, church. You don't. Jesus is, he's gentle. He's kind. He's forgiving. He's gracious. He's loving. Jesus is unburdensome. Jesus takes all the bricks away. Jesus doesn't crack the whip. And so in that moment of faith and grace where you trust and worship Jesus Christ, he takes all of those bricks, 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 bricks of your life and he puts them on the cross. They go onto the shoulders of Jesus Christ. They go onto the back of Jesus Christ and he crushes them into dust, 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 dust so that life can become for you joyful. So that life can become for you restful. You don't have to, you can drop the bricks, you guys, whatever they are. Drop them. You have to build the pyramids anymore. Pharaoh's ways don't work. In fact, Pharaoh's ways won't work in the text. His, his strand, his, his plan, his strategy, his plan of attack, his plan doesn't work. God's people underneath slavery continue to grow and multiply even in the midst of oppression. And so since control doesn't work, Pharaoh turns from control into murder. Look at verses 15 through 16 on the screen. He turns up the heat. 
Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Sifra and the other Pua, he says, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. You might think that Pharaoh's having mercy on the daughters. He's, he's not. This is a matter of, this is where the money's at. He still needs somebody to build his empire. He still needs some slaves. Maybe he's got other dark, twisted ideas of what to do with the women. But for the baby boys, zoom in on Pharaoh's campaign. Pharaoh's campaign is, if it is a son, you shall kill him. So in the most tender moment of a mother's life, in the miracle of pregnancy and in the miracle of childbirth while she's recovering from the birth pains, while the mother is in the other room waiting for the child to be placed on her breast, Pharaoh tells the midwives to check the gender and if what you find is a boy, put it to death. Pharaoh's words, Pharaoh's campaign is you shall kill him. You've heard that slogan before in various different shapes with various different words and various different angles all throughout history. Adolf Hitler's campaign was the final solution. Same thing. China's campaign one family, one child. Our nation's campaign, pro-choice. It's the same thing. Different words, slightly different angle, same agenda. If somebody's ethnicity, if somebody's gender, if somebody's deficiencies, if somebody's existence is a threat to your empire and your pyramids, the campaign is, you shall kill him. And as postmodern people, we look at the scriptures, we look at the Bible, and we refer to it as irrelevant and ancient and out of touch. And thousands of years later, here we are, still running around building Pharaoh's pyramids, putting children to death. Pharaoh is smart, he's intelligent, and he has an argument. Pharaoh has an argument. It's Pharaoh's nation. They're Pharaoh's people. They're Pharaoh's property. If you took a sonogram of Egypt, the Israelites are in Pharaoh's body. He should be able to do whatever he wants with them. You've heard this nonsense before. You've heard it. It's a woman's body. She should get to do whatever she wants with it. It's the spirit of Pharaoh. It is the spirit of the serpent. And to this, we say the same thing that we say to Pharaoh. No. We say no. A woman does not get to do whatever she wants with her body. That's nonsense. We don't even believe that a man should be able to do whatever he wants with his body. That's chaos. 
Wherever there is a man who uses his body sexually against a woman, Christians will be there to say, no, you don't get to do whatever you want with your body. Wherever there is a man who wants to use his body physically against a child or another human being, Christians are there to say, no, you don't get to do whatever you want with your body. Whenever a human body is used to harm another human body, Christians are there to say, no, you don't get to do whatever you want with your body. And so to the Egyptians that served the spirit of Pharaoh and to the pro-choice movement that serves the spirit of Pharaoh, there is so much grace and so much love, and so much forgiveness in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Arms wide open, we want the gospel and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ for you. There is so much love in it, and we don't want you to partner with Pharaoh. We don't want you to partner with Pharaoh. It is this very gospel in which you can find forgiveness that also powerfully compels us to resist this and to oppose this. We are children of God according to this gospel. And our new birth was more than a mere inconvenience for the Father. Our new birth came at the cost, at the destruction of the body of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so our very identity as people of God is people who were not aborted by the gospel. This is central to who we are and we're passionate about it. So we want Roe v. Wade stopped. The Reproductive Health Act, we want it stopped. Abortion on demand, we want it stopped. We want Pharaoh stopped. And one of the most beautiful things about the text this morning is that Pharaoh is stopped in this text. It's awesome. In the middle of this oppressive, violent, dark, ancient culture, there are two heroes who emerge in the story, and both of them are women. Praise God for strong women. Amen? The mission of God is incomplete without it. The first hero we bump into in the scriptures this morning are two midwives who masterfully and craftily deceive and defeat Pharaoh. After Pharaoh's instructions to put all the baby Hebrew boys to death, we see one of the first recorded acts of godly civil disobedience in history. And get this, it's performed by two ethnic minorities of the underprivileged gender, Jewish women. You can't make this up. You can't make this stuff up. Think Rosa Parks here. A minority woman standing up to systematic oppression. Their names are Shifra and Pua. And Pharaoh is, Pharaoh is shocked. He is shocked that these women fear God more than they fear him. Nobody denies Pharaoh in the ancient world. Nobody stands up to Pharaoh. Nobody refuses to worship Pharaoh. And so Pharaoh is so shocked, all he can do is stutter and say, How? Well, here is his response. Verses 18 through 19 on the screen. He says, after they refused to put these babies to death, he says, so the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this? And let the male children live. And the midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian woman, they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. And with these words, check it out, these women deceive the serpent. They deceive the Pharaoh. There are some huge literary links that transport us back to Genesis 3. This is awesome. The first literary link is the phrasing. Pharaoh's response in Exodus 1 
Why have you done this? It's supposed to be a literary link that reminds us of God's response in Genesis 3. What is this you have done? God is in Genesis 3 angry that human life has ended. And in Exodus 1, Pharaoh is angry that human life has continued. But there's a second literary link too, and it's the plot. In Genesis, God's people are commanded to fill the earth. The serpent shows up, and the serpent deceives the woman. But in Exodus, God's people are filling the earth. The serpent shows up as the Pharaoh, and the woman deceives the serpent. It's awesome. Here's the point. This is the rematch between the woman and the serpent. It's supposed to be a reversal of Genesis 3, where the women strike the serpent back because in Genesis 3 God promises that through the offspring of the woman will come Jesus Christ who will crush the serpent and when you read about Shifra and Pua you start to see oh I see where Jesus got some of his genes from I see where Jesus got some of his genetics from kicking Satan's butt that comes from a long lineage of godly heroic women who say no to the serpent and so Jesus comes from that lineage and these women man they don't just they don't just deceive Pharaoh they mock him they humiliate him listen they didn't just say and they could have just said hey they just have birth really fast over there what they do is they throw the Egyptian women underneath the bus listen to this why didn't you do this? And she says, well, the Hebrew women are not, are not like the Egyptian women. They're vigorous. <laughs> They're vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. That's supposed to be mockery. They're saying that the slave women are stronger than the royal women. They're saying that the Israelite women are stronger than the Egyptian women, that God's women are stronger than Pharaoh's women. This obviously injures Pharaoh's ego. Nobody talks like that to Pharaoh. So what Pharaoh does is he turns up the heat even more. The edict for Hebrew baby boys to be put to death extends beyond the midwives and goes out to all the Egyptians. Any Egyptian who sees a Hebrew baby boy has fair game at killing them. On top of that, the imagery gets worse. It extends beyond putting them to death and extends to drowning them in the Nile. And then the camera, after this, after the heat gets turned up, then the camera goes. The narrative tightens in. The camera focuses on one particular family, and we meet our second hero in the text a mother. This is chapter two, verses one through four. After the camera focuses on this one family, Moses goes on to write, now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, good-looking kid, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. And she put the child in the basket and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now there's only three verses here, but in these three verses, and as the story moves forward, just think about all the bravery and all the heroic qualities of this mother in these three verses. After conceiving a child in this crazy, messed up, jacked up world, she probably would have to hide her pregnancy from the rest of the world because it might be a boy. 
So she probably has to hide her pregnancy, hide her baby bump. Maybe she simply resolved to stay at home for six or seven straight months. But somehow, someway, she had to stay off the Egyptians' radar, right? Because worse comes to worse, it might be a boy. And the birth itself, I, I mean, it... That had to be really, really, really intense, the actual birth process. I mean, walls weren't thick in ancient times. So how do you give birth in an ancient home without alerting the Egyptians outside? Any infant-like sound within an Israelite home would set the alarms off with the Egyptians. And so when she did give birth and when she did deliver the baby in that intimate moment when the child was delivered, her worst nightmare came true. She looked at it. And it was a boy, born under a death sentence. But still the scriptures say that for three more months she continued to raise this child and to stick with this child. And a few months go by and babies are loud. Obviously, you know that if you're part of Frontier Church. I have to tell you that. Babies are loud and raising a child is stressful enough when it's in a safe environment, let alone an environment that wants to kill these babies. And so after three months of hiding the child, I, I mean, I don't know. I don't. I don't want to psychoanalyze, but maybe this mother found herself at her wit's end. Maybe the stress finally burned and fried all of her nerves. Maybe it was finally too much. Maybe she just got tired of imagining the worst thing that could possibly happen in any given scenario if the child happened to scream in the wrong place or be in the wrong place. And you can't live like that for very long, right? And so she eventually decides to make a little little basket. Giving this baby to Pharaoh, not an option. Giving this baby to the enemy, not an option. And so this heroic mother makes a basket, right? At the right time and at the right place, she gently places her baby boy in the basket, places that basket in the river, and gives him a gentle push out into the dangerous Nile River that is swarming with mosquitoes swamped with crocodiles just a little right you can you can picture this just a little push of the basket into the Nile River and part of what makes this story just unbelievably beautiful is this small little literary detail that the word for basket that's used in Exodus 1 it's only used in one other place in the scriptures one other place It's the same word in Genesis that's used for Moses' ark. And so, maybe when she pushed that little basket out into that gigantic river, maybe she remembered Noah and Noah's ark. There was only one way for Noah to be saved, in the ark. Only one way for this baby to be saved, in this little ark. Only one way for us to be saved, in the ark of Jesus Christ. So church, there's so much gospel in this little image, so much good news in this little picture. If you are in Christ, you are safe and secure in him. You are as safe in Jesus Christ as this baby boy is in this little basket in the Nile River. And we're not ignorant of the difficulties of life and we're not ignorant of the difficulties of this situation. We know that Pharaoh is hostile towards this baby and wants to kill him. We know that the enemy is hostile towards your faith and wants to kill it. We know that your life, this gigantic Nile River, is swarming with deadly mosquitoes and swarming with crocodiles who just want to eat your faith 
faith alive and you're dealing with your own sin which wants to devour your faith and your own insecurities and your own shortcomings and you look at your little basket, you look at your little faith and you're like, it's just made out of papyrus. It's all I had. Maybe a little bit of tar in a pitch. It's so unimpressive. And I want to say, stay in the basket. Stay in the ark. Stay in Jesus Christ. In Christ, your salvation, your future, your destiny is secure. You're cozy in Jesus Christ. You will make it to the other side. And the irony of this whole picture is so brilliant, man. The irony of this story just makes you want to explode with worship. Just explode with worship of Jesus Christ. The river was meant to be the means by which Pharaoh defeated God's people. Pharaoh wanted to drown these baby boys in the river. Pharaoh wanted these baby boys at the bottom of the river. And here, this baby is gliding across the top of the river. How awesome is that? And so maybe, just maybe, when this mother saw her baby gliding across the top of the water, maybe she caught a foreshadow, just a little glimpse of the Jesus Christ who would someday come and walk on water. The Jesus Christ who would someday crush the head of Leviathan, crush the head of the sea monsters in our life, crush the head of the alligators in our life because Pharaoh doesn't even know it. He doesn't even know what's on its way right now. He's too busy building pyramids and building empires to worry about one little Israelite baby boy. And he has no idea that this little baby boy has his little baby foot on Pharaoh's head and someday will grow up to crush the enemy and to crush Pharaoh. It's amazing. Instead of swallowing this baby boy alive, this river safely, poetically carries this baby boy right to Pharaoh's backyard, oh my gosh. And then Pharaoh's daughter swoops in to pick him up, hears the cries, brings him right into the richest, most powerful house in the ancient world, the house of Pharaoh. This is amazing, this is amazing. And before we take communion and continue singing together, before we close, I just wanna, I wanna swoop back around and I wanna, <clears throat> I wanna reference those two types of heroes that we see in the story this morning. Do you remember them? One hero was a set of working midwives. Now Israel had grown into a nation of hundreds of thousands of people, so obviously they don't only have two midwives. So Shifra and Pua clearly function as leaders among Israel's midwives, as representatives among uh, Israel's midwives. And so these two women appear to be surpassingly skillful and surpassingly excellent at their craft. That's one hero. But the other hero in the story is, by all appearances, a stay-at-home mom who, at this point in the Exodus story, she's just an anonymous mother whose name we don't even know. Those are our two heroes this morning. And so I want to speak through this story to the women at Frontier Church specifically. And I want to speak to you in a way that I hope I'm not going to tell you anything new. I hope I'm gonna affirm what you already feel at this local church. And so let me ask you this. Which of those two heroes serves God better? Bad question. Terrible question. 
Both women serve the purposes of God equally well. The midwives use their vocation outside the home to deceive Pharaoh and advance God's mission. So if you're a mom or a woman at Frontier Church who works outside the home, go get them. Go get them. Be good at what you do. You have our blessing as a local church. Don't be ashamed that you are not a stay-at-home mother. And those of you who identify with the anonymous mom in this story, those of you who experience the day-in and day-out grind and labor of being a stay-at-home mom, use that to advance the mission and deceive the serpent. Use the day-in and day-out grind. Don't believe the lie that you are less than the moms who work outside the home, right? In this story, no hierarchy of worth between these two heroes. No hierarchy of missional effectiveness between these two heroes. No hierarchy of value. In this church, no hierarchy of value. One is not better than the other. There is simply, what are you called to? One is not better than the other. And if we catch anybody in our church suggesting or insinuating otherwise, we will hunt you down, chase you down, and forgive you. (laughs) And have mercy on you. But luckily, we haven't had to have that conversation yet. So our big question in Exodus is, can God's purposes be stopped? Can his mission be stopped? Can his goals in the world be stopped? The answer in in Exodus 1 and 2 is no. But the mission does need women to move forward. God-fearing women inside the home, God-fearing women in the marketplace. So be who God has called you to be and do what God has called you to do. Both heroes foreshadow Christ. Like the midwives who humiliate the Pharaoh with the joke, Jesus humiliates the enemy. Paul uses this same language in Colossians. He says, on the cross, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. And like the mother who saves the child from the death sentence of Pharaoh, Jesus, of course, saves us from the death sentence of sin. She makes a little basket for her little baby boy, and she pushes this baby boy into the Nile River. And while we're talking about that little baby boy in the river, let's ask ourselves a question. Why do we know about him? Honestly, seriously, why do we know anything about this little baby boy? There were probably hundreds and hundreds of baby Israelite boys who were murdered during this time period. So why is the camera focusing on this particular baby boy? We don't know who the baby is yet in the story. We don't know the baby's name yet in the story. But we do know that this baby has just experienced his own personal exodus. Think about it. This baby was born into slavery escaped the powers of the enemy, passed safely through the waters, and made it to the other side and was adopted into royalty. That's the Exodus story. That's the Exodus blueprint. This baby, whoever he is and whatever his name is, is a clearly Exodus-shaped person. It's almost as if, it's almost as if Chapter one, we're kind of a sneak peek trailer that's preparing us for the movie of the Exodus from chapter three to chapter 40, just kind of like that sneak peek trailer. It's almost as if this person is going to grow up and lead the people of God in an Exodus. It's almost as if this person is going to grow up with some significant weaknesses and some significant insecurities and is going to need the confidence of his own personal Exodus to give him the confidence to 
to lead God's people through their own corporate exodus. Now, this baby, if you've grown up with the Bible or within Christianity, you know who the kid is. This baby is, here's verse 10. We'll have it on the screen for you. When this child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son, and she named him Moses. Because, she said, I drew him out of the water. Moses is going to one day grow up. He's going to one day grow tall. He's one day going to grow strong. And he's going to lead God's people in an epic exodus. But first, he's going to kill somebody. And we're going to have to deal with that next week. Okay? We don't have time. Let's pray.